Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. This is the podcast intro for Dr. Renee Wellenstein. She's a double board certified doctor who's had the opportunity to work with women over the last 20 years. And I couldn't think of a better individual healthcare practitioner friend to talk to you about a topic that I feel on so many levels is grossly misunderstood not discussed enough with patients. We know based on study research of 43% of women go through low libido throughout their lifetime. I bet you that is probably a gross underestimation. We talked about some of the physical reasons why this can happen, the net impact of certain types of medications, alcohol use, GYN surgeries that can interrupt blood flow to the ovaries, as well as the net impact of different hormonal fluctuations and changes, as well as neurotransmitters. I think it's really important to keep the conversation open. I love that Dr. Renee really dives deep into connection, intimacy, sleep, exercise, and the impact of food choices, as well as specific recommendations with regard to changes to the vagina, vulvovaginal atrophy, and the net impact of hormone replacement therapy, not only for that, but also options for women that have gone through breast cancer treatment, whose healthcare providers are not comfortable with hormonal replacement therapy, but options that can help support libido and why both Dr. Renee and I do not love pellets. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Dr. Renee, I'm so excited to have you joining me today to talk about a really important topic, one that I feel most women feel a degree of stigmatization about. They don't feel comfortable talking to their girlfriends about it, their loved ones, certainly not their partner, their spouse, their significant other. How did you get so vested and interested? I know, obviously, as an OBGYN, you love women, you love taking care of women, supporting women, but where did your desire to talk to women very openly about libido and some of the sexual issues that they're dealing with, where did that desire stem from? It was fairly recent, to be honest. And before we go into it, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here (laughs) and talk about this because I really think we need to bring it to, you know, the forefront of topics in women's health. But, you know, honestly, when I was an OBGYN, I didn't want to talk about it. I would literally crouch down in my chair every time a woman would bring up low libido in her visit. And I know many of your listeners probably experienced that with their OBGYN as well, because I constantly see on comments and social media. And why is that? because there's not that one research as docs, as conventionally trained docs, we rely on the research, that one paper to tell us, do this with this, make the diagnosis, do this. And the problem with libido in women or low libido in women, there's never been that one study to do that for us. As a matter of fact, there's not, you know, hardly been any studies that focus on women's low libido. It's always men, erectile dysfunction and such. And we can go down that rabbit hole of why, but It's just not there. So essentially in the past, I was trained to give that hormone, that pill, whatever to treat the symptom. And in my five minutes with my patient, I really want her to feel heard and treated. The problem is the majority of those women, I didn't have anything for because there wasn't that magic bullet hormone because, you know, again, as a trained 
gynecologist, you know, you know, testosterone equals men, right? Estrogen and progesterone equal women, men. I don't know what it is with men and sexuality is just much more again at the forefront regarding their decreased desire related to testosterone. Mm -hmm. And I think we are so conditioned as gynecologists to think women are exactly the same way. So honestly, in my practice, I was looking for that next best testosterone, but in the conventional world, testosterone in women is a no-no. And there was one menopausal hormone replacement, but it essentially, I don't think to this day it's ever gotten FDA approved. And it was oral, which oral estrogens hurt a woman's liver, kill a woman's liver. And then we put on top of that, a testosterone. Oh my gosh. Right. Like, so that is all I had. So if you fit the frame of a menopausal woman, I might have that to give to you. Although I have to say, when I pulled my prescription pad out of my pocket to write it, I always felt uncomfortable because it just, I just was like, ah, I'm told testosterone in women is a no, no. Ah, what am I doing? I'm trying to help her. And so to be honest, for those 15 years in conventional gynecology, I just would run from the topic and it would come up maybe once a month at that, really not that frequently. And I really didn't know what to do with the women that were in their twenties, thirties with the low libido. You know, I was just really at a loss of like what to do, decrease your stress. It's normal. You know, all the things that women hear nowadays. So fast forward to current day, you know, I went into functional medicine, gosh, seven plus years ago. And I actually started to ask women about their libido because I was so frustrated with my 15 years of not being able to help these women. But now my mind was opened up to an entirely different way of treating women. And that meant looking at more than just one thing, looking at the root cause, like what is it that's causing her to not have that desire? And really what I found is no one woman was alike. You know, everyone's different, personalized medicine, right? And generally for women, it just wasn't one thing. It was more than one thing. And not to say testosterone is not great in women. I love testosterone, to be honest. I think it's great for, you know, especially, you know, lean muscle mass and strength and so important as we get older. And I would have to say for the women, I tried it in because I got brave when I went to my functional medicine practice. And I tried a lot more with women, including compounded testosterone. And I really found that, yes, it helped other things, but wasn't really that bang for the buck that I wanted with libido. And so really, this is the evolution of me starting to just ask more and more questions like, what else could it be? And even to this day, you know, and I took on the subject about a year ago, number one, because I'm tired of women thinking it's normal at all these different ages. Number two, I'm tired of us not talking about it. It's a huge problem out there. And when I started to go public online about the topic, women came out of the woodwork in my DMs, in my messages on Facebook saying, oh my gosh, this isn't normal. Oh my gosh, there's something I can do to help it. Oh my gosh, thank God I found you. (laughs) So I really, you know, came out to really start the conversation, I continue, I call myself the libidoologist because I continue to study it. It's, you know, like anything in medicine is constantly evolving. I think every day I have an aha moment, like, oh my gosh, another kind of like little pearl of like, what could be causing her, what other underlying cause could be cause, you know, the root cause of her low libido. So I do think it's an ever evolving topic. I do find that I've had to, you know, piece together a lot of the research myself And I have to admit, I was a little scared to take on the topic a year ago because it is so big and there isn't that paper out there and there isn't a ton of research, you know, and again, this piecing together, like, am I really going to help these women? And yes, I am helping these women. And I think, you know, a lot of times, even women listening to this podcast today, you know, if they get one little aha moment of like, oh, that might be me and, you know, take whatever recommendation is given and run with it, that might be part of cause of her low libido. 
Yeah. And I'm so grateful that you pivoted because that benefits so many of us. And I, I think even entertaining the possibility of having an open, honest conversation with a healthcare provider is so critically important. And I'm laughing slash not laughing because I know what that's like. I spent all of my time as an MP, 16 years in cardiology. And you better believe the really brave men and women would talk about their sexual concerns, whether it was libido, erectile mm-hmm. dysfunction. In fact, you know, it's one of those things I reflect on that my discomfort is not their issue. Like that should not be their issue. But I agree with you that there's so little that we have available for women in particular with men. We know, yeah, it's probably medication induced. It's probably insulin resistance. Let me give you some, you know, Cialis or Mm -hmm. one of the other erectile dysfunction medications, and then they're happy. But women are so much more complicated because when we're thinking we're very good at multitasking. So to your point about the fact that they're concerned about low libido, but it could be five separate things that are contributing to that low libido, very likely all their to-do list, the things with the kids, Mm -hmm. something with work, Mm -hmm. someone they forgot to call back because your brain is programmed to be able to multitask constantly. Mm -hmm. Unlike men. And I jokingly say to my husband, you know, he doesn't care when, where, what, why, anytime he's always available and ready to go. And I always say, I'm not like that. So Mm -hmm. I'm so grateful, like I said, that there are healthcare professionals and physicians that are kind of leading this discussion because it is so, so important. One of the statistics I read when I was doing my prep was that 43% of women go through a low libido. It has to be higher. I kept thinking that number has to be higher because even just girlfriends unknowingly like joke about it. Like my, one of my best friends from college says all the time, my mom had a low libido. I have a low libido. It's genetic. And I was like, well, I mean, maybe you have low normal testosterone, but the irony is when I think about those young women that you're alluding to, we give women hormonal synthetic contraception to prevent pregnancy. And there's no judgment there. But the sad thing is a lot of things that prevent fertilization also tank your libido. So you have like these young, healthy, 20, 30 somethings that want to have an amorous relationship with their partner and they have no sex drive. And so let's at least like start the conversation and we'll kind of talk about how synthetic hormones, as an example, can dampen the desire to have sex Mm -hmm. to be able to explain it in a way that people really understand. Because I find it isn't just the 20 and 30 somethings that are put on oral contraceptives are given a contraceptive IUD and they wonder why they have like literally no sex drive. And so it's a byproduct many times of the medication they're they're given. That is correct. And I want to just add one little thing talking about the difference between men and women. I worked with men for four years. And the funny thing is I would say, I can't say hundred percent because there was one gentleman I can think of that didn't come in with this complaint, but 99% of the men I took care of would come in and their primary complaint was low sexual desire, low libido. And when I further questioned them, I asked them about, you know, how else do you feel? How, you know, oh, well, I've had low energy and, you know, I'm decreasing, you know, gaining weight, losing muscle mass. I cry at the drop of a pin. And I was like, whoa, how long has that been going on? Oh, like a year. Why are you here today? Because I don't want to have sex. (laughs) I was like, oh my gosh, versus the women that would come in they would come in with low energy, right? Gaining weight or the two biggest ones, right? Mm-hmm. I had to actually question them. And when I uncovered all the other stuff, they did have a low libido underneath there, but that wasn't their primary complaint coming in. So you can see where men and women, where we even prioritize 
sex, right? Like men, it's at the forefront because I mean, I think what's the number? Like they think of sex over 200 times a day. Yeah, just evolutionary. Wise. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. And I mean, testosterone has a lot to do with it. They have a lot more and we have a lot less, but we're a lot more sensitive to it. Mm-hmm. However, you know, our brains are different, how we process, how, you know, I mean, everything from emotions to how we process everything, what was said, facial expressions, you know, and studies show that women are more givers and men are more takers. So women are actually much more satisfied with just deep connection versus men more about frequency. So (laughs) it's really very interesting, the dynamics and just like trying to take this, like at a bird's eye view of like coming out and like looking at the big picture of like, what else can we help her with? Because all those 99% of the men, they were all low in testosterone. And the problem is what I had in my practice is I would replete them their testosterone because I could not deprive them, even though it is very, there's a lot of doctors out there that won't even give men their testosterone back. They're very, they're scared of it. That was not me. But the problem is a lot of these men never want to get to the root cause of why their testosterone was low. You know, I had someone as young as 22 with a low testosterone. Was it insulin resistance or just exposure to Toxins, I, toxins. He was Amish, you know, so a lot of toxins and, you know, potentially, in, although no, his, he was thin, his insulin was good. His glucose was good. You know? So like we really, and of course they pay out of pocket. So you kind of got to be careful with all the testing that you do. So a lot of times it's like still scratching your head. Like, what is it? But I do believe for him, it was a lot of toxins, believe it or not in food and, you know, environmental. So, but getting on a topic of women, twenties, thirties, forties, even into fifties, because ironically we were taught to transition a lot of perimenopausal women into menopause on the birth control pill and oral synthetic hormones, particularly estrogen actually increase something called sex hormone binding globulin, a protein that actually will bind up your free testosterone. So I actually kiddingly, and I don't laugh at this anymore for 15 years as a gynecologist, when girls would come in on the pill and complain of a low libido, I said, ah, you know, that works two ways of, you know, preventing pregnancy. Number one, you don't ovulate. Number two, you have no sex drive because it binds up all your testosterone. I am sad. I said that in the past, but it was true. I knew that was a side effect. And a lot of women were unfortunately willing to take that side effect, the expense of a prevention of pregnancy. But, and then of course we're talking to women and they're thirties, forties, fifties, we're doing the same thing to them. Their hormone levels are already decreasing, especially testosterone and what they do have. We're, we're binding up with these synthetic oral hormones. So there's a reason for it. And I have a lot of women come to me, do I have to come up my pill? I'm like, maybe we find a different option. It depends on how important is it to you? Because when I talk low libido also, it's like, I don't, I got asked in another podcast, you know, why not, not demonize it, but like, I don't demonize it. I'm raising awareness. And if I don't characterize a low libido as a frequency of intimacy can just be connection for women, right. Can just be holding hands and cuddling. But if a woman is bothered by her frequency of intimacy with her partner, that's who I'm here for to talk to. If you have no intimacy and you don't care about it and you don't want it, you don't have to listen to me. (laughs) So, you know, I'm not here to, to say it's a, you know, you're bad because you don't have a sex drive. I'm here to just raise awareness and help those women who are bothered by it. Yeah. And I think it's important for people to understand that there's this fine line between side effects from medications and taking medications to prevent pregnancy or quote unquote, regulate hormones. I'm stunned at how many women are in their late forties, early fifties, and they have no idea where they are. They're like, they don't get menstrual cycles. Mm -hmm. They have no idea where they are. 
And they're like, oh, well, you know, my doctor, my NP, my whomever said I can stay on this until I go through menopause. I said, well, how do you know? If the average age of menopause in the United States is 51 and you're 52, guess what? You're probably already there. So I think kind of keeping those, keeping that communication open, as you mentioned, for those that are interested in investigating But what are some of the other medications that you see? Like I used to prescribe a lot of beta blockers, like a tenolol, low presser that had a lot of sexual side effects because they also impact neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin. But what are some of the other medications that you might've prescribed that you would see this low libido issue with as well? Yeah, I think the other biggest one that I prescribed because I was very limited. I wouldn't do the antihypertensives. I would generally, it was the antidepressants, definitely. And so, you know, our anti-anxiety, mostly the antidepressants. So, you know, and it's kind of one of those topics, again, you look at the side effects of antidepressants, same thing, you know, and again, the effects on the neurotransmitters and it does say low libido there, you know, so it kind of comes down to, you know, unfortunately it's a side effect. And I would say just like the birth control pill, a large number of women would have the side effect of a low libido. Mm-hmm. A large number of women would have the same side effect with an antidepressant or anxiety medication. I know it's unfortunate that that's not disclosed often enough because I think I, in fact, I know that if someone's taking an antidepressant with the hope of their depression improving, and then they have the byproduct of now having no libido for maybe for some people that trade-off is worth it, but for many others that may make their depression actually worse. If that, Correct. that becomes problematic. Now I was actually looking at research on that. Like what comes first, the chicken or the egg, the low libido or the mood issue, you know, and a lot of times it's like a vicious cycle, you know, and the mood issue and being on antidepressant leading to low libido actually further contribute to the depression. So there was a definite correlation there. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. How about alcohol? Oh, big time. Yeah. You know, alcohol, the biggest thing with alcohol is its effect on estrogen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even like as little as one drink a day for women will actually do that, you know, and we've seen a rise in alcohol consumption over the past 20 months, and it will definitely increase a woman's, you know, we talk about estrogen dominance, that will definitely contribute to her low libido. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise. So you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 
or 12 month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I have used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code E. WP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. A great deal about our focus on everyday wellness is on supporting gut health. And one of my new favorite ways to recommend to family and friends and even clients is to consider colostrum. And so Equip Foods has an amazing product that helps to improve immunity and gut health and recovery. And each scoop contains grass-fed, pasture-raised, antibiotic-free colostrum. And if you're wondering what colostrum is, it's a nutritional powerhouse that serves as the first source of nutrition for mammals in nature. It's been shown to enhance immune function, gut health, and recovery with vital nutrients such as lactoferrin, growth factors, and prolon-rich polypeptides. Colostrum is a natural milk-like fluid produced by mammals immediately following delivery of the newborn. And while colostrum is a dairy product, it does not contain milk or lactose. So most people with lactose intolerance usually find colostrum very easily digestible and beneficial to gut health. You can use one scoop a day. You can mix it in things like coffee or mix it in shakes or even yogurt or even some of your baked food recipes. As I mentioned, has a lot of health benefits, including research demonstrating the improvement in a reduction in inflammation, promoting good gut flora, and supporting restoring leaky gut to normal permeability. And what I love best is that Equip Foods is very ethically focused. Their cows are humanely raised and ethically treated, and cows produce an excess of colostrum when nursing. So only after their babies get what they need are they able to source the excess colostrum for use in their products. There is three grams of colostrum in each scoop and one serving in comparison to main competitors has just one gram. And research demonstrates that this dose, the three grams, actually promotes more benefits to gut health, immune function, recovery, and vitality. So if you'd love to take care of your health, you can go to www.equipfoods.com slash Cynthia20 to get 20% off your first order. That's www.equipfoods.com slash Cynthia20. You definitely want to check this out. Someone's in those perimenopause years and the city that I moved from, there was a huge kind of wine culture. Mm-hmm. Again, no judgment. I just, alcohol became something that almost guaranteed I would have a terrible night of sleep, even with a glass of something. But I see a lot of women, as you mentioned, kind of self-medicating at night where they go mm-hmm. to a party. Maybe we haven't had as many of those over the last 20, 22 months, 
But alcohol in and of itself, if you're already in perimenopause, already leaning towards estrogen dominance because your ovaries are producing less progesterone, Mm -hmm. that can make your symptoms worse as well and more inflammation and all those other symptoms that I know many of my guests talk quite a bit about because they're, we're trying to raise awareness. So women are just aware, like as you go into your forties, this may no longer serve you well. And so when you're working with your women, do you have an amount of alcohol that you kind of think is a threshold, like maybe a couple drinks a week most, or are you more concerned about the binge drinking behaviors that you see? You know, I, I take into account how often she's drinking. And obviously if estrogen dominance, most of the women I work with estrogen dominance is definitely in the picture. And here's the interesting thing in doing my research on alcohol, alcohol, actually higher estrogen levels. So we're talking about women either with that already estrogen dominant picture or in the perimenopausal phase will actually change the brain's reward center as far as its sensitivity to alcohol, meaning it's going to take less to become more pleasured by the alcohol. So, you know, and actually the woman is going to be feel even better with the alcohol. So just kind of, this is why women are even more, it's more dangerous in their forties, fifties, when you're naturally estrogen dominant because of our anovulation status that we actually more addictions occur because of that brain reward center that kind of gets a little tweaked from the higher estrogen levels, which I thought was really interesting because you have to think like, I am seeing it all over social media, especially like women, my age, you know, late thirties, forties, fifties that are really having a hard time with the pandemic and drinking a lot. And it could be a hormonal reason why we're more prone to addiction than men. I mean, if it is an issue, then we definitely, you know, start cutting down or out. I mean, obviously even for, I know you talk in in your world with weight loss and insulin resistance, it's just not smart to do it frequently, you know, and I don't love binging on the weekends, but having a glass or two on the weekends is acceptable. Again, as long as we're kind of making headway with her symptoms, as far as her estrogen dominance goes. I think it's really important for people to understand that each one of us are individuals. Like Mm -hmm. I stopped drinking completely during the pandemic because for me, it was always a very much a social thing and we Mm -hmm. weren't doing much, much Mm -hmm. of anything that was social. But I also, as I got into my mid to late forties, what started happening for me was I never got a hot flash. My sleep was generally really good, but if I drank a glass of wine, had a martini, my sleep was terrible and I would get hot flashes, which Mm -hmm. for anyone that's listening, if you haven't yet experienced them, (laughs) they're not fun. And certainly mine were pretty mild in comparison to a lot of the patients and clients I've worked with over the years. But for me, I made that connection almost immediately. I was like, Mm -hmm. that is not a good feeling for me. So it was very easy to say, Mm -hmm. I choose not to because But I think a lot of people don't necessarily make those connections. And so I think it's a valuable one to say, like, you know, a lot of the research that I've been looking at with regard to blood sugar stabilization or dysregulation for that matter, and alcohol use and hot flashes, it seems that the research is suggesting that those with the most degree of insulin resistance or propensity for insulin resistance generally also have the worst hot flashes. And so if you're listening to this and you're trying to dig deep down into figuring out why your hot flashes are such a problem, really look at, you know, blood sugar stabilization, what your diet's like, et cetera. I know that's a little bit of a tangent, but I wanted to put that in because I found it fascinating that blood sugar dysregulation, insulin resistance, drive hot flashes Mm -hmm. and can sometimes make the people that have the most severe, like people that are in the small suspect, I think it was 20% of the population will have significant prolonged severe hot flashes. 
it's generally related to insulin resistance, which makes sense given how Mm -hmm. metabolically unhealthy the population is. I agree. Yeah. But what I think is really important for women to understand, this is something that I admit I probably didn't understand enough about because I did not practice as Mm -hmm. in GY. I was not a women's health MP initially. How many women have, they get to the point where they need some type of surgical intervention, whether it's for fibroids, endometriosis, they have a hysterectomy where they remove the uterus and, or potentially their ovaries. And no one talks to them about the fact that if you have surgical menopause as one example, mm-hmm. you're going to make that transition so quickly that it may mm-hmm. explain why you have no desire to mm-hmm. have sex or have no libido or have a very mm-hmm. low libido. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that was, it's probably the worst kind of menopause to go through. Cause it's not, you know, I feel like even that woman who one day wakes up, and never has a period again, I feel like it's a lot more gradual than going into, especially if you're having issues with heavy periods, you have a lot of estrogen on board, most likely because estrogen dominance, one of the symptoms is heavier, crampier, more frequent periods. So that tells you right there, there's more estrogen on board. And then you wake up after surgery, you no longer have a uterus. And, you know, historically what we were doing for these women is popping up a patch on them post-op. But here's the reality. A lot of docs are scared of hormones nowadays, gynecologists, you know, ever since the women's health initiative came out in what 2000, like, you know, yeah. I mean, I know I was shortly out of residency because our phones were going off the hook, ringing off the hook with women like, oh my gosh, I'm at estrogen. What do I do? And so there's a lot of docs nowadays that, you know, and again, they're not the same hormones that I actually recommend. They're completely synthetic, you know, Premarin, you know, did the study that was done was using a completely synthetic estrogen from horses and a completely synthetic progestin. It's not even a progesterone. It's a progestin. There's a significant difference in our body. You know, I think it breaks it down to like 27 different metabolites, the estrogen that is like, it doesn't recognize it. It's not human. It's horse estrogen. So, and just think about what that does to our cells and our body. Like it's a foreign chemical. It's an, you know, foreign estrogen. I'm sorry. I digress, but this whole thing is so relevant because I'm getting ready to do a webinar talking about hormones mm-hmm. related to middle age and beyond. And there's a book. So obviously every, all the listeners, this will be in the show notes, but there's a book called estrogen matters. Mm-hmm. I have dove down a massive rabbit hole, looking at women's health initiative, looking at how unhealthy the population was. Mm-hmm. They excluded healthy women who had just mm-hmm. gone through menopause. The mm-hmm. average age was 63 Mm-hmm. Most of the women were overweight and obese. Most of them were former or current smokers. Most of them have, were treated for high blood pressure. You can't look at a, a population of women like that and extrapolate again with synthetic hormones on top mm-hmm. of it, mm-hmm. that hormones are bad. And I think this rhetoric about hormones being harmful is hurting women. It is. I cannot mm-hmm. tell you every time I speak out on social media about this, for every 20 women that are thrilled that the conversation has been opened, I have people in my DMs and telling me that I am going to hurt women. And I said, we need to be open and honest. Like this book, Estrogen Matters, is written by an oncologist mm-hmm. who has gone to the mat for women's health. And so in many ways, I think that this fear about hormones stemmed from that 2002 study. Mm-hmm. And this is a study that was done by the National Institutes of Health was over $1 billion invested in the study. So a very large scale study. And there were so many things in the scientific process that weren't done properly mm-hmm. when this information was released that it pains me because I think you and I 
a roughly the same age, I was finishing my nurse practitioner program. And when that came in, I remember telling my mom, I was like, you have to get off hormones. Like this is harmful. And that was the general consensus. Most studies don't do a press release before they're actually published. And so Mm -hmm. I think in many ways and talk about tangents, but relevant because we're talking about women's health. We're talking about Mm -hmm. hormones. We're talking about libido. I think about how many women have needlessly suffered because I look at my aunts who are now in their Mm seventies and my mom is osteoporotic. My mom is fearful of hormones because of everything that had come out. You know, I look at her loss of muscle mass and you see a lot of these cognitive, the cognitive impact. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole other excellent book recommendation, XX Brain by Dr. Lisa Moscone, talking about how critically important hormones are for brain signaling. And we just think about hormones for our sexual function, but Mm -hmm. everywhere in the body, we have receptors for estrogen and progesterone and Mm -hmm. testosterone on our bone, on our muscle, Mm -hmm. in our brain. And so I'm so glad you touched on that study. But again, apologizing because I'm going to try to like bring us back to our original intent for having this conversation, that it's so, so important that everyone get educated about how this impacts how you're going to age because women will spend 40% of their lifetime in menopause. So it's important that you figure out for yourself what the best decision is and, you know, connect with clinicians like Dr. Wellenstein to determine the appropriateness of these types of different therapies. Totally agree. And I think a lot of docs out there in the conventional world, which was me for many years after that study, were sort of, we're scared. You know, I have to say as a traditional doc, I was, and I'm sure you were as well. We were, I always say I was trained in defensive medicine. I was medical legally. I was so scared of getting sued, right? Like that's, I mean, especially since I was also an obstetrics, you know, like I was delivering those babies. God forbid the baby didn't go to Harvard at 18. I might get sued. So this is like, I woke up, I went to bed, like every clinical decision was not what is best for the patient. I mean, it was, but like risk benefits, is it going to harm her? And what we're taught is hormones are going to harm her. And this magic five-year window of just being on estrogen, like at five years, I'm ripping it away from you. Like, I don't care if you feel good on it. I'm not listening to you. I, you know, this women's health initiative tells me I have to do this. And, you know, and I, I remember myself having this conversation with women and, and, you know, unless they had debilitating hot flashes, I was not going to put my license on the line and prescribe estrogen to them. Yeah. And it's really sad how I've come full circle to look at it a lot. Like you have also with a study and how poorly it was done and how, you know, European countries actually advocate for hormone replacement, but using bioidentical hormones, like they don't even use the crap we use here in the States. So it's just really, and these are studies I'm reading for my OBGYN board certification. And I'm like, my jaw is dropping that they're getting this, you know, natural estradiol. And I'm like, well, like we fight our insurance companies to get anything, you know, and for your audience, like you can get natural bioidentical hormones from your doctor prescription. They're called estradiol, but the problem is most insurance companies don't want to pay for them because they're more expensive than say a Premarin. But what's in, what I find frustrating is that we have a very kind of patriarchal Mm -hmm. medical establishment. Mm -hmm. And so you better believe the erectile dysfunction meds get Mm -hmm. covered, Mm -hmm. which I think it's completely inappropriate that women's hormone replacement therapy, bioidenticals and otherwise, and we should be asking for bioidenticals are not covered or women are shamed. I was talking to a colleague of mine, someone I went to nursing school with a thousand years ago, and you know, she's a smart nurse. And she said, Oh yeah, I've been on hormone replacement therapy. I was like, okay, you know, what are you taking? And she told me oral estrogen, Uh. oral estrogen. And I said, well, you have a uterus, right? No progesterone. Mm -mm. 
And so all I could think of was that's why I think more and more of us have to be speaking up so that women understand that there are other options. Like you started the conversation and when you take hormones by mouth, it's hard on the liver because it says this first pass effect and the liver has to break down and detoxify. But let's talk a little bit, this is a little sooner in the conversation than I had intended, but let's talk about some of the options because this is relevant as a GYN, relevant to what are the options that are available for women? Let's start with estrogen. So there's lots of estrogen options that are not just oral and obviously they're synthetic and then bioidenticals, but mm-hmm. what options are available for women? So if you're listening to our conversation and you're at that stage of your life and you want to enter into a conversation, what are some of the options that women can be asking before? Yeah. I mean, as far as, I mean, contraception, I mean, we'll go way back. I think a non-hormonal IUD is probably the best. However, a lot of women experience heavy periods with them and they don't really want to deal with that. So you have to have, I found in my practice, a really special woman that wanted not non-hormonal, which is not the average woman out there. I think second in line would be a progestin containing localized contraceptive, which will not have the effect in your libido, like an oral combination birth control pill would. Those are my two favorites. Obviously, you know, barrier methods, you know, are the best, but a lot of women don't, you know, a diaphragm and condoms and the female, con- like, but I know they're not as glamorous as the others and, and not as you can't be as spontaneous. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes to women coming into the perimenopausal menopausal phases, a lot of women just at that phase before they enter menopause, don't even need to think about estrogen, obviously, because majority of them are estrogen dominant, meaning, you know, either you're making a lot more estrogen naturally combined with potentially external sources of estrogen, which could be from too much alcohol or too much stress or endocrine disrupting chemicals Mm -hmm. that are actually putting you over the edge. And the fact that many women in this phase of life are not regularly ovulating. So not what gives us our rise in our progesterone is when we ovulate. So when you ovulate, you release the egg 14 days later, if you don't get pregnant, your progesterone level comes down abruptly, you get a period. That beautiful cycle doesn't occur on a regular basis, generally in perimenopause, which is why women 14 day periods, you know, 55 day periods, 60 day periods, no period for six months. That tells you, you're probably, you're not ovulating. And for those women, number one, if you think there's underlying reasons, why aside from your age that you have too much estrogen, really look into that. I mean, dietary obesity will actually contribute to higher estrogen levels, perimenopause, premenopause, postmenopause. So you got to really think about that because fat cells in above of themselves are, are endocrine organs. They produce their own estrogen as well as other hormones. So, you know, there's that. So like, look at the big picture, but while you're kind of trying to figure out like, why is my estrogen high? You can consider progesterone. Now there's two different ones that I usually recommend. If you go to your regular doctor, I'm sure they'd be happy to give you an oral progesterone, which we do not have to worry about oral progesterone with the liver as we do with estrogen. As a matter of fact, I really love oral progesterone in the perimenopausal stage of life, because a lot of these women are having insomnia. They're having difficulty sleeping and a great side effect of oral progesterone is it makes you dizzy, but sleepy. So I obviously take it at bedtime and you'll probably get amazing night's sleep and it'll balance out hopefully the estrogen. So you hopefully have more frequent periods, lighter periods, hopefully less crampy periods, and you can ease into menopause. Now the brand that your doctor could prescribe is called Prometrium. So it's something that 
hopefully would be prescribed by your, or covered by your insurance and prescribed by your doctor, your doctor probably wouldn't have a problem with prescribing Prometrium. I would just stay away from Provera if possible. Now, if we kind of are transitioning into the menopausal stage, that's where we kind of have to look at combination hormone replacement. And it's interesting because you made a comment about the uterus and conventionally trained as a gynecologist, I was told that was, if a woman doesn't have a uterus, she doesn't need progesterone. However, I'm all about balance (laughs) and we can easily make a woman estrogen dominant. So I generally would put a woman on both estrogen and progesterone, even when she was menopausal, just so she wasn't thrown out of balance, just getting estrogen by itself. But that was, that was how I was taught in functional medicine. And that's what I did. As far as I would continue to use this one of your options for the progesterone oral by mouth or even a cream. And then usually from the estradiol aspect, you can get a patch from your doctor. That is actually usually my favorite. The only problem with getting a patch from your doctor is that there are fixed doses. And what I really loved about actually prescribing a bias, like a bioidentical estrogen cream is that I could actually titrate her dosing based on her symptoms. And I did find in evaluating women's blood work and estrogen levels being on a cream versus a patch that a lot of times she was having a lot higher, obviously estradiol levels since they were hundred percent estradiol with the patch. So if you have the availability of a doctor who prescribes bioidentical hormones in the form of like a bi-estrogen cream, that's awesome. Cause then they can, again, they can also change the percentage of how much estradiol is in there versus estriol, which is a little bit of a weaker estrogen, but nonetheless really important, especially for the vaginal tissues. Estriol is wonderful. And, you know, I've had women that really didn't want a slug of estradiol. I'd put them on 90% estriol. Yes, it's weak, but it's something. And we would just hydrate the doses from there. So those are my favorites. Definitely. It's really interesting because it it provides the opportunity to open the discussion with Mm -hmm. providers and say, I'm aware that there are these other options. And I know I always actually appreciate it when people would do a little bit of homework before they Mm -hmm. would come in for an appointment and it would show me they were very vested in certainly in their health as well. Now, I know that if we kind of take this back to the libido piece, so we've talked about how to replace hormones. We talked a little Mm -hmm. bit about contraception. When we're talking about other things that contribute to low libido, and we've touched on some of them, Mm -hmm. but there are some like significant things that can occur. Like there's low libido. And then like, I think it was 10% of the population actually has this HSDD. So this hypoactive sexual desire disorder, which I would assume is like the extreme end of individuals that are impacted by a lack of libido. Did you see much of this in your practice or is this like one of those unicorn diagnoses that, you know, in my research it's mentioned, but it's probably only seen in like ivory tower research environments. Yeah. I didn't see it a whole lot, to be honest. You know, and again, just like that, where you were quoting 43% of women have low libido, I think it's completely underreported. Like was, we're not talking about it. So of course, where are they getting that number from the women that are talking about it, which is not many. So the same goes in my clinical practice. You know, even if women had it, number one, I wasn't generally talking about it. And number two, they were definitely generally not telling me that they had it. So yeah. I didn't see it often. Yeah. I can't imagine. Cause I'd never even heard of it. I was like, wow. So some foods that can be contributory towards 
a low libido, I would imagine are kind of the things I probably talk a lot about processed yeah. foods, standard yeah. American diet yeah. on the opposite side. What are some foods were, I would assume kind of nutrient dense, mm-hmm. uh, you know, less processed are mm-hmm. going to be much more beneficial, not just for your health overall, but also for production of hormones. I know there was this whole anti-fat movement, you know, we were bastardizing fats for such a long period of time, mm-hmm. trying to explain to people that we need to be able to make cholesterol yeah. and from cholesterol, we cleave off and actually make these sex hormones. So if you're not eating healthy fats or not eating the right kind of fats that can impact the quality of the hormones that your body creates makes. Yeah. Yeah. I think your audience already knows. Cause you talk about it all the time, you know, <laughs> again, you know, if you eat the animal proteins, lean animal proteins, uh, carbohydrates aren't bad, obviously, but just stay away from the refined carbs, you know, like the things that have the fiber taken out. Cause I'm big on fiber. I'm big on mm-hmm. feeding that gut microbiome because that's really important for your hormone balance, your estrogen metabolism as well. Um, healthy fats, super important, you know, olive oil, coconut oil, avocado, dark chocolate, <laughs> some of my favorites. And, you know, obviously you're again, your veggies, I'm big on veggies as well because of the fiber, you know, green leafy for, and also green leafy veggies have like your cruciferous veggies have something called sulforaphane in it. And sulforaphane actually helps us break down estrogens into a healthier form. Now, genetically in the state of New York, which is where I live, I cannot test women for this, but there are some fun, fancy tests out there that you can actually see how you break down estrogens to see if you make more of the more dangerous breakdown product of estrogen. What the compounds in cruciferous veggies do is actually help you make more of the beneficial estrogen. So Super important. You can also take it in a supplement called diindole methane or indole three carbonyl, but I food first <laughs> veggies first, if possible. And just your fibrous veggies, again, mostly for your gut microbiome. You know, we got to make sure that we keep those gut bugs happy, healthy, and breaking down our estrogens. Well, and there's this kind of ugly term called the estrobolum. I know, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's like tomato, tomato, depending on who I'm talking to. But again, this is what Dr. Renee is kind of reinforcing is so critically important because we package up and get rid of excess estrogen or should, if we are stoking like these healthy gut microbiome environment. Now, I got a lot of questions about how does exercise and sleep impact libido, which I found fascinating as well Mm. as supplements. So are there supplements that you in your practice recommend to boost support, et cetera, libido? So again, let's not talk like we're men, right? Like, let's not talk about the (laughs) testosterone boosting because there are, I mean, I've done TikToks and testosterone boosting, you know, tribulus and maca and, and all of those, they're all great. But what if testosterone is not the issue, right? So like what I focus on as far as supplements is I would say hundred percent of my clients have stress as a root cause of one of the root causes. So I definitely love what they call an adrenal gland adaptogen. My favorite is ashwagandha to help with stress, obviously stress management awareness, number one management, number two. And again, I work with my clients on that, you know, regular docs are like, okay, just go be less stressed. And it's like, how, you know, like <laughs> how in this, go meditate? How in this day and age do we like calm our brains enough to do that? So I do definitely love ashwagandha. I also love as a staple for pretty much everyone, B vitamins, like a B complex, as well as magnesium to help make your hormones, you know, B vitamins, actually, even if we're talking about this beautiful, pristine veggie rich diet, our food is so deficient in nutrients. So, and you know, I live in New York again, most of my food comes out of truck across the country. (laughs) So by the time it gets me, it has no, you know, very little nutrition left, even if I get fresh. So I do love a bee complex. The other thing with bees is that they get depleted with stress. So really important. Again, I'm talking about 
stress being one of the biggest things I see in women. And it just goes to show that, you know, probably they're deficient in B vitamins. And I can't say there's been ever one woman that I've actually tested that's not been deficient in B vitamins. So I now, and just empirically put every woman on a B complex and it also helps make things like serotonin and dopamine, the things that make us happy and feel rewarded and calm. So there's kind of a double whammy there for the B complex magnesium, super important, you know, again, natural anti-inflammatory, but actually also helps with hormone production Two of my favorite vitamin D obviously. And what else I'm trying to think of what else I like across the board would, you know, obviously if I'm thinking of estrogen dominance picture, again, personalized medicine, right. I would recommend diendol methane and upping her cruciferous veggies. And if a woman, again, also estrogen dominant pitcher, another great supplement called Vitex, which actually will help produce the progesterone and help balance out the estrogen. And these are great options for women, especially if they don't want anything hormonal. I really tap into the supplements. Definitely. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armor Colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armor's Colostrum strengthens immunity ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And armrest colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believed that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. 
It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high-quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bi Optimizers. Masszymes is a full-spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product. With five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today, risk-free. They have a 365-day full money-back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. And those are definitely great starting points. I think mm-hmm. for so many people, like I, I did a, a talk a couple of years ago and I talked about maca and ashwagandha mm-hmm. because there was so mm-hmm. much research on them. Mm-hmm. They figured that was the safest yep. thing. There we go, protecting ourselves. We're like, we're going to, you know, something that's research-based if I'm going to be speaking to a large platform. And I'm always surprised how often, and this is conditioning. Like mm-hmm. I acknowledge that in many ways we have conditioned our patients to ask for a supplement or a medication before mm-hmm. thinking about the lifestyle medicine piece. Mm-hmm. And I got so many DMs about maca. And Mm -hmm. so I found it really interesting when I was talking to people that I said, you know, we can do all these different aspects of lifestyle medicine. And yes, maybe this one supplement can be hugely impactful. However, we really need to back up the bus and get a full view of what's going on with our hormones before we start layering in lots of complicated things. And I think one of the tests that you were alluding to that unfortunately you can't order in the state of New York is the Dutch. Mm-hmm. And so for women that are listening, I certainly talk about this test a lot in conjunction with serum blood testing as mm-hmm. well, mm-hmm. as well as other types of tests. But the Dutch in most instances is saliva based, but also can be dried urine. It can provide a really comprehensive view of how your metabolism, your estrogen, what your circadian rhythm, cortisol distribution, et cetera, look like. And I find it oftentimes very nicely mirrors what you'll get on blood testing because mm-hmm. another nuanced kind mm-hmm. of view. Now, a lot of the questions that I received beyond what we've already talked about were related to topics that I think for a lot of women are very, very uncomfortable for them to discuss anything related to our vulva and vagina. You know, people don't like to say the word, let alone talk about it. And for many people, especially women who are tend to be smaller, maybe don't have as much adipose tissue, maybe they're leaner, they're just lower in estrogen normally mm-hmm. heading into perimenopause and menopause are getting a lot of concerns, questions about their lack of libido is really a reflection of physical changes that have mm-hmm. gone on in their body. So mm-hmm. can we talk a little bit about this vulvar vaginal atrophy that can occur during this transitional period and what women can do about it? And mm-hmm. off camera, we were talking about the fact that this is a great example of you need to, if you're having issues in this area in particular, you have to have the conversation sooner rather than later, because it's almost like if you don't use it, you lose it, which is unfortunate. Mm -hmm. So let's Mm -hmm. unpack that a little bit. 
Yeah. I mean, that's so true. And a lot of women don't, they'll think it's going to get better or they don't need it to be intimate. And that's so not true, especially if, you know, it goes on years and years. And like you just said, if I've actually seen this clinically, that the area will start shrinking, it gets smaller. And of course, putting something larger in it will hurt. I mean, there's dilators. I mean, but if you wait too long, it becomes much more of a process to get it back. And a lot of women just don't want to go through that process. Mm-hmm. So I think number one is if you're starting to have discomfort, of course, you probably have a low libido because you don't want to be intimate if it hurts, right. right? Communicating with your partner is huge because you got to slow things way down. And as far as what you can do about it, there are regular like vaginal moisturizers you can use on a regular basis. Actually, when you're going to be intimate lubricants and they make them super fun nowadays and you can have fun with it. It is definitely not something. I think a lot of women stigmatize lubricants like, oh, I don't want to have to use one. And I think, you know, a lot of women that have no problem with lubrication use it because it can be fun to use. So lubricants are definitely an option. Obviously you got to be careful of the kind you get, you know, you could be sensitive to some of the lubricants out there. And I'm sure Cynthia and I have lots of friends with great companies that had these kind of non, you know, toxic lubricants and then, you know, hormonally. And again, we won't go into vaginal dilators because I feel like that's the little bit of an extreme, but there are options out there to be able to use what they call dilators to introduce slowly. They're just exactly what they are. Dilators. A woman can actually insert and work on herself and get ready to be intimate again. But again, that's a little bit on the other side of that's a little more reactive. We've already got a problem. Let's try to be a little more proactive. So we have a problem. It hurts. Communicate with your partner. Again, moisturizers are great on a daily use lubricants for in the moment. If you need something more there, and also actually hormonal. I know we have a common friend that has like a hormonal DHEA that you can put yeah. down there. That would be great to start if you don't want to go to your doctor, because I do think a lot of women are hesitant to go and talk to your doctor about it. Mm-hmm. So getting on this earlier and continuing to be intimate is great. If you need the next step in hormones, a lot of conventional docs actually ironically don't have a problem with getting, giving vaginal estrogen Mm -hmm. because that didn't come out as a big no, no in the women's health initiative. So localized estrogen is very well accepted in the conventional world. There are a lot of options. There's, you know, vaginal creams, there's rings, which I found most of my patients preferred the creams versus the rings. The only times I ever had women that really wanted a ring is if she had any sort of prolapse. Sometimes the rings would actually help a small prolapse, nothing large would actually help hold up her bladder potentially. But, you know, I think for my patient population, they like the creams because it could be used remotely from intercourse. Her partner didn't feel it. And like I said, the biggest complaint I would hear from the ring is that her partner felt it and she didn't want to continue it. So, you know, so there's a, like a little continuum of like what to do when you first notice, get right on it all the way up to hormonal treatment. Yeah. It's really interesting because if, if you are familiar and I know you are, but if a listener is familiarized with what actually starts to happen in the vagina, like as there's less and less estrogen, it impacts the vaginal microbiome or the vulvular microbiome. And so the lactobacilli bacteria that would otherwise be living there and be happy, they start dying off the pH level changes. So women all of a sudden are like, I have weird discharge or the smell doesn't smell the same. And now it's dry. And now it, the skin feels really fragile. And so I love that you kind of walk through that. And I always think about Dr. Anna Quebeco's mm-hmm. Jolva cream. Mm-hmm. And I think it was part so of like referring my to- recommended holiday gift guide because you don't need a prescription for it. Mm-hmm. It's safe. 
I think for a lot of women, we got a lot of questions about women who are cancer survivors Mm -hmm. and obviously really hot topic given the fact we've just been talking about hormone replacement. What's interesting is this book, Estrogen Matters, is actually written by an oncologist. Mm -hmm. And what I think is really relevant is his wife at 45 was diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And he said after a few years, she started noticing this cognitive decline and he has in his practice and his wife is, is an example of this cautiously, they went on hormone replacement mm-hmm. therapy and actually are doing a whole lot better. So mm-hmm. I know that conventional allopathic medicine, this is a no, no, but no. And I would just refer to the resource yep. great book, go check it out. Yep. Uh, but he spends a whole chapter talking about women. What are some of the things that you typically would recommend for women that were not hormonal that could maybe help support their body, their libido post-cancer treatment? Well, you know, I was going to say soy, but soy will kind of fall into that same, you know, the phytoestrogens, which is not the case. But again, you know, the research out there that it's not, but if you're in the conventional world, they're going to say, stay away from soy and stay away from hormones. So if you kind of want to walk on the edge, you might want to think about phytoestrogens. Obviously, soy is a highly genetically modified crop. So definitely get some organic soy products first and foremost, because we're not going to do any good if we're adding extra toxins to our body. And, you know, again, I think a lot of the, like Vitex would definitely help also. I think being a little more proactive as far as recurrence, you know, weight loss is super important because one of the biggest causes of any sort of malignancy, even postmenopausal have to do with the estrogen production from adipose tissue. You know, like why is a woman who's 60 have high estrogen levels? It's from adipose tissue. So that definitely a healthier lifestyle, because like you said, you know, it's like a lot of times that will be the biggest problem solver across the board, start with lifestyle. And I don't even know if we hit on sleep earlier, you know, adequate sleep and exercise definitely would improve bone health confidence level. And, you know, is it a woman who, so I think the biggest one I would see again, is that woman who's having the hot flashes and night sweats. She was the one who was always asking. I think a lot of women out there that are just menopausal that don't have any menopausal side effects, aren't even asking for hormone replacement. So for them to even go to the dark side and consider bioidentical hormones is really uh, radical, which I don't think it's radical. I mean, I'm a lover of bioidentical hormones myself. And as soon as I cross the threshold myself, I'm popping right on them. But I think it's a risk benefit kind of thing. And I think you really need to see if hormones are appropriate for you. And if not, there are some other supplements like the Vitex, consider phytoestrogens. There's tons of phytoestrogenic supplements out there, creams, as well as oral supplements. No, that's super helpful. I know that again, that question came up multiple times, just from people who post-cancer treatment have really suffered and many of whom are post-breast cancer treatment and they're Mm -hmm. on you know, drugs Mm -hmm. that are designed to plummet any estrogen in their bodies. So they're Mm -hmm. achy, they have headaches, they don't sleep well, et cetera. So thank you so much for all of this. Obviously we'll have to have you back again because there are so many different directions we could have taken with our conversation. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you feel like we left out of the conversation about libido that would be helpful or beneficial for listeners? Yeah. You know, when I have my roadmap, a lot of women, we start with, I mean, hormones for me are always icing on the cake and they're usually a component definitely, but I always kind of go way back of like talking about mindset. Like, how do you feel about yourself? How do you feel about your, you know, your relationship? Because I find 
we're not going to fix a broken relationship. <laughs> so, you know, communication and your relationship is a big one, but, you know, again, working on mindset, how you think about yourself. And there's actually also a study of, you know, you have to have a growth mindset in order to improve your libido, just like anything in life. Right. And the growth mindset is believing that it can get better, just like your health, right? If you're stuck in that, oh, I'm never going to feel better. I'm never going to lose weight. I'm never going to have a better libido. You're going to be stuck. You know, you have to try to shift that. It's more of a growth mindset of saying, you know what, it's not great now, but we're going to get to the bottom of why I'm not desiring intimacy and we're going to work on it. So, you know, mindset's huge relationship, communication, setting boundaries, huge women are super stressed right now. And I think that's obviously from what we've just gone through in the last 20 months, but a lot of women, including myself, lost myself for a little bit there with everything going on around me giving to everyone else and forgetting that I need to take care of myself and I need to communicate where I need help. So super important. And that will actually also start helping break down that stress a little bit when you can start identifying, like, you know, I always have my four D's. What do you have to do in a day-to-day, you know, like in around the house with the kids, what can you delegate? Ask the kids to do, ask your hubby to do. What can you delete completely off your list? Like, what don't you really have to do that's on your list of 15 things? And what can you put off to a later date? And I think, you know, when we wake up with 10 things on our list, when we realistically can only get three things done, we're already setting ourselves up for failure. And I know ladies, we don't want to fail. So set yourself up for success, you know, do your four D's, put on your to-do list of things that you have to get done and take some time for yourself. Self-care is very important. I absolutely agree. And I just realized there's one area that I need to ask you about okay. in this call. So a lot of women are getting pellet injections mm. for testosterone. And mm-hmm. this is now coming up with so much frequency, like people that are coming to me that already have testing done. And I look at it and try to figure out why their testosterone is so high. And they're like, mm-hmm. Oh, I've been using pellets. What are your thoughts on pellets? I'm not a fan because it's just so unpredictable. And I'm assuming that you're probably thinking exactly the same thing, but would love to have your input as well. Yeah, exactly. The same reason as you, I never trained in pellets because in my opinion, I like to be in control Mm -hmm. (laughs) as best as I can. You know, I'm not God, but I do like to be in control, especially of hormones. And I do find that once you put something in and keep it in for three months, you have no control. And I think the biggest side effects I saw from women were from testosterone, mm-hmm. not necessarily even pellets, even the creams I would give them, you know, and if they came in with hair loss or increased acne, I was actually also seeing it with DHEA, which you can presume was because it was feeding into testosterone. So I saw how exquisitely sensitive women were to testosterone and the precursors to testosterone that I never wanted to go down the route of pellets because it's literally, you know, you put it in and it's like, okay, hands off until we have to take them, you know, remove them. And that's just not how I wanted to practice personalized medicine. There was no, you know, especially starting out a lot of, even with female hormones, there's a lot of titrating that goes on. There's a lot of like, you empirically put a dose on board based on her symptoms and her testing. And then you up or down, you know, frequently until you find your sweet spot. And then that cannot be done with pellets. Right. It's literally a shot in the dark. I've just yeah. seen a lot of women that have either ended up with very high testosterone levels mm-hmm. that aromatize. So testosterone yep. can aromatize to estrogen, estrogen. Mm-hmm. and then they would be worse with their estrogen dominance. And so, you know, I think much to your point, the, the lack of predictability makes mm-hmm. it a little less advantageous, but certainly I do know there are individuals that are doing testosterone with creams, but with women, we do also up until menopause, 
make our own testosterone, but it's mm-hmm. such a smaller, I think it's like a 10th of the amount that men mm-hmm. make. So, yep. you know, if you get too much, it can mm-hmm. be problematic. Um, well, we're also much more sensitive. We don't have a lot, but we're much more sensitive. So, you know, we can't be dealing with male doses of testosterone without starting to look like a man. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, there's so many other side effects prior to that, but that women just are not, not, it's not good for women. They do not feel good. So absolutely. Well, Dr. Renee, it's been a pleasure connecting with you today. Can you let my listeners how to connect with you? You have a wonderful podcast that I've been fortunate to have been a part of as well. How to find you on TikTok and Instagram. I do love watching your TikTok. I always say like, you make me aspire to get better about doing reels <laughs> and TikTok. I don't live on my website, but I have a website, drreneewellenstein.com. I am all across social media because you know, my feeling is if I can say one thing, like I said earlier in this interview, if I can say one thing and a woman has an aha moment and it changes the course, the trajectory of her health and her libido, my job is done. So I try to be as present as I can across all social media platforms, at least to put on women's radar that this is an issue and we can do something about it. So I am Dr. Renee Wellenstein on Facebook, TikTok, Instagram. I have a YouTube. I have a podcast called the real heal, which you were on. And it was an amazing episode. So I actually just rebranded that to the real heel. So it used to be called love the leap with Dr. Renee and yeah, so I'm everywhere. (laughs) I don't know where I'm going to be in the future, but that's where I am and come hang out with me and learn a little bit more about libido. Awesome. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure to connect today. Yeah, you too. Thank you. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review subscribe and tell a friend. 